0: Acts chapter 6 is where we find ourselves, and uh, as our musicians make their way off the platform, I want to begin by just opening us with a word of prayer. Would you bow with me? God, we give you praise. You are Father, Son, and Spirit. You are the great I Am, the three in one. And through Christ, you have lavished your grace upon us. God, we, we progress from grace that is greater than our sin to the praise that you are due and that is entirely appropriate God we were lost and undone without hope but you lavished upon us grace greater than our sin and God you have for those who know Christ who are in Christ today you've you've transformed us from the inside out and you have made us works in progress that you will finish in the day of Christ Jesus Jesus And God, from this day to that day, we give you praise that in spite of ourselves, we have a hope and a future that will not disappoint. And God, we we pray uh, that you would give us mouths to speak that truth, no matter the opposition that we face, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So welcome back to the book of Acts. Uh, We find ourselves in chapter 6, verse 8. If you'd turn there, Luke is setting the stage for us in a pretty long passage that we're going to cover today to see how the Christ-like witness of Stephen is going to lead, ironically, through his persecution and death, to the spread of the gospel. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said the gospel is going to spread ultimately to the ends of the earth, beginning in Jerusalem. And so far, the gospel is kind of bottled up in Jerusalem. How is it going to get out? Well, just as salvation Came through Jesus who was crucified. The spread of salvation is gonna come through Stephen, who is stoned. And we're gonna we're gonna see that transition story today, starting in Acts chapter six, verse eight. With you would you hear with me the word of the Lord? And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. That, that's the Sanhedrin. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I want to show you first from this passage that we've just read, and we'll continue. We'll get into chapter 7 momentarily, but for now, what I want you to see is that God produces the life of Jesus in the life of His witnesses. God reproduces, if you will, the life of Jesus in those who have been transformed by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and given mouths to magnify Christ. We see Stephen getting grace and power and wisdom. Where? He gets them from his Spirit-given union with Christ. To this point, gospel proclamation has mostly been the work of the apostles alone, but that changes with Stephen, who is a transition character in the book of Acts, who proves to us that the message of the apostles becomes the message of the church. The, The message never changes. Jude 3 says, it's the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. There's one faith upon which the church of God is founded in all seasons, and all times, and now Stephen, not just the apostles, is proclaiming it. Though he had been commissioned to serve tables to Hellenist widows in the church, that doesn't prevent him from speaking the gospel. His his work among the widows apparently has him rubbing shoulders with people who belonged, do you see it in verse 9, to the synagogue of the freedmen. The freedmen, who are the freedmen? They are men and their families who had been enslaved and then later emancipated or set free. And they were quite proud about that fact. The day that escaped slavery. Or they were children of parents who had escaped slavery. But there's an irony in their name. And it is this. While they had escaped physical slavery they remain spiritually enslaved. They're enslaved spiritually by a misreading of the Old Testament and of the trappings of tradition that hinder them from trusting Jesus and lead them to dispute with Stephen. In verse 8, God fills Stephen with grace and power, signifying his divine enablement to do great signs and wonders among the people Stephen is is not an apostle, but he's able to work miracles because God is validating his witness to still more Jews. He's certifying that the message is true because they're seeing the miraculous that they were familiar with from the Old Testament. But the freedmen are unconvinced. It it isn't Stephen's miracles that bother them. If you go down to downtown Roanoke and start working miracles and healing people, nobody's going to be upset at you. It's the message of the gospel that offends people. It's his message about Jesus that upsets them. It's his message that though they think they are freedmen, they remain enslaved. It's his message that that having the law and the temple could not save them, that salvation only comes through the blood of Jesus. In verse 10, we read that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he is speaking. The the Holy Spirit was motivating his spirit, and he is speaking with, with great power and clarity and wisdom. And the freedmen have two problems in this text. You know what the first problem is? They were wrong. Whenever you enter an argument or debate or dispute, it's good to be on the right side of the argument. But they were wrong. They were wrong about the Old Testament, and they were therefore wrong about Jesus. But then they had a second problem, and it wasn't just that factually they were wrong. It was that God met Stephen, and he will meet you, by the way, with what Merida calls unanswerable wisdom when he's attacked for his witness to Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus says? In Luke twenty-one, fourteen and 15, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This promise was given to the apostles, but now we see it being lived out in the life of Stephen, which means it can be lived out in your life as well. The Holy Spirit, when He fills us, He brings the wisdom of Jesus to our mouths and our minds. Now you say, well that's great, I don't have to study the Bible, meditate on the Bible, memorize the Scripture, I don't need to know any of the Bible, I can just go out there and start talking and everything's going to be great. That's, that's not what this means. Stephen clearly had studied the Bible as we're going to see in chapter 7. He knew the word God. Of God he meditated on the word of God he studied the word of God but he didn't have to like script out everything he was going to say when he went into an argument when he went into a debate when he went in to present the gospel why because in that moment the cylinder started firing because the spirit of God was doing something in his heart and his mind in his mouth and Jesus just came pouring out of every fiber of his being and the freedman could not withstand it. so Stephen is empowered And he's given wisdom from Jesus. But he's also falsely accused and put on trial like Jesus. When the freedmen realize they can't win the debate based on the facts, what do they do? They appeal to emotion. They secretly instigate or provoke men to charge him with blasphemy against Moses and God. In verse 11, Moses meaning He's speaking ill of the law in their view, and God meaning He's speaking ill of the temple in their view. In Matthew 26, 59 through 65, do you recall what happened to Jesus? He was put on trial. They charged Him with blasphemy for making Himself equal with God. And now Stephen is likewise put on trial by the same counsel for blasphemy, for supposedly discrediting the law And the temple. And then in verse 12, what do they do? They stir up the people along with the elders and the scribes. Notice that they were able to stir up the people. Until this point in Acts, the church has been popular with the people, but suddenly popularity is gone and it offers no protection to Stephen. The the mob seizes him and makes him stand trial before the council like Jesus and the apostles before him. They know that their blasphemy charge is bogus. So they break the law to defend the law. We just read, you shan't you, we must not bear false witness." What do they do? They bring in false witnesses to twist Stephen's message and ignore his urgent calls to trust in Jesus. We've got to understand Stephen is not trashing the law or the temple. Rather, he's telling the people, as we're about to see, that God gave these things to point us to our need for Jesus. But these freedmen and their Mob will not listen because listening would require them, look at verse 14, to change. Now what's interesting is is the word that's used there is not to change the law, but instead to change the customs that Moses gave to us. And there was this tradition in Judaism to ascribe back to Moses stuff that Moses never wrote down. In other words, Jesus is going to change our way of life and we're not too happy about that. Did you know that coming to Jesus will change your way of life? It'll change what you think, what you say, where you go, what you do, what you watch, what you don't watch, how well you endure in your marriage. It will change everything about everything, and they don't want to change. Rather than change, what do they do? They ambushed him, they misrepresented him, and eventually, as we're going to see, they stoned him to death. And the lesson for us is, the, is this, and Marita says it this way, and I love it, we must be ready to be excluded, mocked, misrepresented, shamed, and even killed for our testimony to Jesus? Are you ready, church? I mean, that's a a question that we really should ask ourselves. Am I prepared to be excluded, mocked, misrepresented, shamed, and even killed for my witness to Jesus? Some of us won't come to church because it's cold outside. Am I ready to be excluded, mocked, misrepresented, and shamed, and perhaps even killed for my witness to Christ? And then Marita adds this. So don't give in to the temptation to try and make Christianity cool. Don't give in to the temptation to try and make Christianity cool. Christianity is not going to be cool in this world. If we, if we rip off what the world is doing and throw a cross on it, it might make us feel good and like we fit in with culture and we fit in with other people. But the gospel is offensive to self-righteousness. The gospel is offensive to worldliness. And if our message to the world is, Jesus is fun too, we haven't really represented the gospel very well. We have a king who claims it all for himself. And he asked that we bow our knee to him as Lord. So what do we do? We must instead trust God to give us wisdom and power. The wisdom and power that belong to Christ, that are Christ who is wisdom. When we speak and live the gospel, knowing that it might be costly, Stephen certainly didn't give in to the temptation to try and make Christianity cool, did he? He stood up for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. But what happens? Something cool does happen when he does that. His face starts glowing. Can you remember somebody else in Scripture whose face started to glow? You remember Moses when he went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law and he came down and his face was glowing? And people were like, put a veil over your face. That's convicting to us. We, we see the, the glory of God resonating in you. Do you remember somebody else who went up on a mountain whose face glowed? On the Mount of Transfiguration, King Jesus, that his his face was glowing, and now we've got Stephen, whose whose face is like that of an angel. And what God is showing us is that that Stephen stands in the line of prophets. He, he is like Moses delivering God's revelation in this moment to these people who are refusing to listen. He's, he's like Jesus and ultimately he's going to be stoned and killed and the message of the gospel is going to go forth and they're accusing him of disrespecting the law and Jesus is saying, no, he's just like the law giver. You think he's blaspheming Moses, but he's like Moses and he's like Jesus. He's filled with the Spirit. His face is transformed. And then in verse 7, he delivers a sermon for the ages. Y'all ready? Chapter 7. We're going to cover the next 53 verses. You're like, what? True story. We're going to do it. So I want you to hang on to your Bibles because we're going we're to read quickly. All right? Hear now the word of God. And I'm going to try to read with inflection at certain points along the way uh, to to cue you in to some some themes as we go. Verse 1, chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs. Jealous of Joseph, you remember Jacob and his 12 sons, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom, just like Stephen, just like Jesus, just like Moses, before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Pause at the end of verse 22 for a second, a parenthetical that I won't get to in the message. But I find it interesting that Moses complained that he was a stutterer and a stammerer and he couldn't speak very well. But Stephen's like, the dude was amazing. I mean, just look at all the speaking he did. He was phenomenal. You complainer. Anyway, sidebar, verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, verse 30, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew back to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush." Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. He's still up there on the mountain doing whatever. Verse 41. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Rephon, and the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness, that's the tabernacle. Is my footstool? What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. All right, Daniel, what are you going to do with that? Moses just summarized the lion's share of the Old Testament in 60 verses, 53 verses. Here's what I want you to see this morning. And then if you want to come to Wednesday night and get deeper, come on. It's going to be fun. We must proclaim Jesus from the Old Testament. Jesus is not an add-on to the Old Testament. He is what the Old Testament is about. The Israelites thought the Old Testament was about them. Stephen says... The Old Testament is about Jesus. And we have a tendency in our human flesh to take good gifts that God gives us and make it about us rather than about God. We do that with all sorts of stuff, not just with the Old Testament. We do it with sanctuaries. We do it with where we like to worship, what songs we like to sing. We put misplaced trust in tradition and miss jesus in the process. And Stephen is saying, we've got to understand that the Old Testament points to Jesus. Furthermore, he's showing them that all of these covenants, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, David, that every single one of those covenants finds its ultimate fulfillment, not in Abraham, not in Moses, not in David, but in Jesus Christ. How do you get into land? You get there through Jesus. How do you have the presence of God in your life no matter where you are? Because God is overall, you have it through Jesus. You can't have the fulfillment of any of these covenants in full without Jesus, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of them. When the high priest asks him if he's guilty, asks Stephen if he's guilty of blaspheming Moses and God. Stephen answers, how? With a survey of the old testament his accusers might read the bible but they have not read it very well so in verses 2 through 50 Stephen gives what Merida calls a historical clarification where he shows that God's presence isn't confined to a building rather it has always been with his people and his presence predates the law it predates the temple and it predates the land let's walk back through real quickly we see this in the story of Abraham in verses 2 through 9. God appeared to Abraham when he was in the land, no, when he was in Mesopotamia, long before anyone connected with Abraham lived in Canaan. God took the initiative. He promised to show him the land. He removed him from Haran into the land. He gave a promise of an inheritance to him and his offspring, even though he didn't even have any children. God predicted that his children would be born and they would be enslaved, but one day they would make it into the land and you would know that it was his offspring because they would be the circumcised ones who were there. Here's Stephen's point. Israel's story would never even have started If it depended on God's presence being contained in a particular place, at a particular time, in a particular land. Israel exists because of God's initiative. God's presence can't be contained to a temple. It can't be contained to a sanctuary. Stephen makes the same point in verses 9 through 16. He he makes the point all over again. With respect to Jacob and his sons who he calls the patriarchs god was with his people where in egypt god's been in mesopotamia he's been in haran and now he's in egypt specifically he's in egypt saving israelites how by giving favor and wisdom to joseph before pharaoh a pagan king of a pagan nation And this favor that he gives to Joseph, this undeserved favor that God gives to Joseph in Egypt is how Abraham's offspring, a family of 75 people in all, verse 14, survives long enough to grow into a nation. Israel could have been eliminated before Israel ever became Israel without God's presence in Egypt. God assured Israel's prosperity and her posterity were preserved long enough so that she could even get the law or enter the land or build a temple. And when Stephen mentions Joseph, he introduces a second challenge. Not only their lack of understanding about God's presence not being able to be contained in one place. He, he also shows them that, that Joseph was the first of many who was rejected by his brothers before God used the one they rejected to bring salvation. God has a history long before Jesus of using rejected saviors to save. Are you all following that? So Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and then becomes the way that God saves his brothers. In verse 17 through 41... Stephen makes the exact same point. Time passes in Egypt and the Israelites multiply and a Pharaoh emerges who doesn't care about what Joseph has done for Egypt during the famine. So he tries to exterminate Abraham's offspring because they're growing so rapidly. And what does God do? He raises up Yet another deliverer, Moses, beautiful in God's sight, knowledgeable in the wisdom of the Egyptians, mighty in words and deeds. And when Moses is 40 and he wants to bring his brothers together, they refuse him. And in verse 27 they say, Who made you a judge and ruler over us? So Moses, what does he do? He, he checks out, he leaves town. He flees to Midian. And after 40 more years, God speaks to him again, where? Not in the promised land, not in a temple, but in the wilderness of Sinai from a bush with a fire in it, but somehow isn't consumed. The Lord calls Moses to return to Egypt, and what does Moses do? He does. He, he goes back, now not without a little bit of quibbling along the way, but Moses goes back and he leads them out, verse 36, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And if we have any doubt that Stephen values the law, he calls the law in verse 38, living oracles mediated by an angel. Once again, God advances his promises despite Israel's faithlessness. In calling the law living oracles, we we see that Stephen thinks highly of God's law, but then he shows most Israelites never thought highly of Moses or his law. Hang with me here. Moses was rejected not once, but twice. The first time he wanted to save his people, they threw him off. Who made you judge and ruler of us? He goes to Midian for 40 years. Then God, out of a burning bush, sends him back. And yes, they let Moses lead them out of Egypt and in the wilderness, but they never actually follow Moses. In verse 39 and 40, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts, they turned back to slavery. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to people who call themselves free. And he says they, went, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery. Saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. He's up there on the mountain doing something with God. But we've got stuff to do. We've got priorities We need to make a God in our image. We need to make a God who will do our bidding. We need to make a God who's about us, and so we'll make a golden calf and we'll sacrifice to it. They rejected Moses not once, but twice. Do you understand what he's alluding to about Jesus? He talks about two visits with Joseph in Egypt. They came one time and then they went back and they came a second time and Joseph fed them. Moses, they had two opportunities to follow and they missed it. Jesus came one time and you rejected him and he's coming again. You better not miss the opportunity to trust Jesus before his second visitation. While Moses is on the mountain with God receiving the law, the Israelites are longing to go back to slavery and sacrificing to a golden calf that God tells us they made with their own hands God wants to do the miraculous work of making us new on the inside with hands that only he has that only he can make us new and there they are making their own idols. In verse 42 and 42 through 50, Stephen keeps showing us that this is not a one-time incident but a recurring pattern. What did Israel do? They kept on longing for Egypt, for slavery rather than salvation, for idolatry rather than faithfulness. In verse 42 and 43, he quotes from Amos chapter 5 to show that they had been no better than the pagans around them, worshiping what? The sun and the moon and the stars and sacrificing to false gods. God had given his people the law, but all it did was clarify their lawlessness. It could not and did not save them. They took the tabernacle into the promised land where they were supposed to commune with God, a tabernacle built according to God's design. But what did they do? Instead, they took up not the tabernacle where God was dwelling, but the tent of Moloch. God, verse 45, drives their enemies out of the land, but the real enemy remained within them. They were idolaters, and their rejection of God's saviors was a rejection of God himself. These freedmen were in truth still slaves making their connection to Moses and temple idols of security and self-importance rather than looking through and beyond them to Jesus in verse 37 Moses reminds us excuse me Stephen reminds us that Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18:15 look for God to raise up another prophet like Moses Look for God to raise up another prophet who's going to take you out of slavery. Not slavery in a land, but slavery to sin. But instead, these freedmen were trusting in their status as those who had received the law. Furthermore, when Solomon built a temple in a place that God had promised to Abraham centuries before, Israel missed the point. And they never pursued their mission. They never took The glory of God to the surrounding nations. Instead, she remained idolatrous and she neglected God's promise to bless people from all nations through them. I I don't know that I can do justice this morning to clarifying what a shock it must have been to hear what Stephen was saying to these freedmen. He tells Israel that her story is a story of God's salvation in spite of Israel, not because of Israel. It is a story of a God who cannot be contained to a building. It is a story of a God who is radically committed to exalting His rejected Son, His ultimate Savior over all the world. It is the story of the overcoming grace of God. It is the story of a God who keeps His promises to get a people from all nations despite the nation who kept on rejecting the Saviors that He sent to her. In verses 51-53, through Stephen presents Jesus as God's last rejected Savior. No more saviors to come and be rejected and offer salvation. Jesus or bust. Why? Because it is in Jesus that God has kept all His covenant promises to His people. In Jesus, people like Abraham trust in the promised Son. Who trust in the promised Son have a home in God's promised land. In Jesus, the death penalty that the law requires has been paid in full. In Jesus, the seed of Abraham, who is qualified to inherit all of God's blessings, has come. And he shares them freely and fully forever with all who trust in him. Him, Which is why salvation, according to Paul, is in Christ. It is in Christ, it is in Christ, it is in Christ. You have nothing unless you are in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, then today get into Christ by turning from your sin and believing in Him and inherit all the promises of God. In Jesus, Israel's king is right now ruling and reigning in Righteousness. He is on the move this morning in churches across the country where the gospel is lifted up and proclaimed and Jesus is magnified. He is on the move across the world where the gospel is proclaimed and the spirit meets the man of God with the word of God or the woman of God with the word of God. He is changing stony hearts into hearts that beat for the things of God. Hearts that truly see themselves as they are apart from God and see that they need Jesus to make them right with God and they Turn over, not a new leaf, but they turn over their life to God. Jesus is grafting them into the temple of his own making. Jesus is the king in David's line who lives forever and is enthroned in the heavenly temple, who is welcoming sinners who repent and believe today to join his growing global multi-ethnic people until he comes. Many, Many who were accusing Stephen had refused Jesus once. And like their fathers did with Moses, many were stubbornly refusing him all il- over again. They are stiff-necked, Moses says, trusting in gifts they never deserve, the law and the temple, and refusing the righteous one who alone could rescue them from their unrighteousness. Physically, their men were circumcised. But spiritually, do you see this in verse 51? They had uncircumcised hearts and ears. They would not be moved in their heart by the message of the gospel. They would not listen to God's heart coming through Stephen's lips. And now, like their fathers before them, they persecute God's witness to Christ in the persecution of Stephen. Would you finish with me chapter 7? As we look at verse 54 and following. Now when they heard these things. They were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said behold I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Pause for just a moment. Can I just tell you that it makes me excited. That when Jesus is proclaimed rightly from the Old Testament, that he stands up in heaven. That's exciting to me. When we get the Old Testament right, and we preach it as, as a, a pipeline to getting to Jesus, Jesus is pretty happy about that. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments... At the feet of a young man named Saul. Who would later become Paul. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Which is a nice way of saying, he died. The last thing I want you to see from God's Word this morning is this. We must live for the glory of God and love our enemies no matter the cost. We must live for the glory of God and love our enemies no matter the cost. By the end of chapter 7, we notice an intensifying pattern of persecution, right? The apostles were arrested and warned, then they were arrested and flogged, and now Stephen is stoned. Rather, Then his listeners being cut to the heart, his his accusers are instead enraged and they grind their teeth at him. Verse 54, which is a sign of the intense rage of the wicked against the righteous in the Old Testament. And it is also the eternal plight, right, of those who reject Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 8, verse 12? Those who reject him will be cast into outer darkness and in that place there will be weeping And gnashing of teeth. Their anger, however, cannot overshadow Stephen's avenger, King Jesus, enthroned in heaven. In verse 55, the Holy Spirit opens Stephen's eyes to see the unseeable. He began his sermon. Do you remember how Stephen begins his sermon? By proclaiming the glory of God. And now his eyes are open to see the glory of God. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He doesn't just see God, the God of glory. Jesus is there too. And you talk about really making his listeners pretty angry. Jesus claimed he was equal to God and he's therefore a blasphemer. And Stephen goes, well, I see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And he's standing up. You know, Jesus said he was going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. We see that in Hebrews 7.25. He's there, he's interceding on behalf of those who trust in him. You you walk out of here and you're, you're hot for God and you're ready to be on fire for Jesus. And then you sin and you're like, what's my hope? Your hope is that Jesus stands between you and the Father, pleading his blood on you forever. But here, Jesus is standing I want to live a life that makes Jesus stand up. We don't, we don't know exactly why Jesus stands up. There's a lot of commentators and opinions out there. Some, some say that he's honoring Stephen. Like someone standing at the conclusion of a great speech or a great play. My daughter and uh, our very own Grace Shoner as well are on... Um, a basketball team that has kicked some backside this year. I mean, they've just been awesome. And at the end of their last game, when they won the state championship last week, everybody erupted and stood up. It's just this this natural thing we wanted to do. Maybe Maybe Jesus is honoring Stephen. Others say... Jesus knows full well that Stephen's about ready to give his life. Maybe he's standing up to welcome him home. You ever had a friend who's been gone for a long time, and then they're coming over to visit? And, and, and there's a sense in which they could just walk in your house because y'all are that good of friends. But what do you, what do, you do when a guest comes, comes in your house? You, don't you stand up? And you open the door and pre-COVID maybe give him a big hug, and maybe some of you are rebels like me, you give him a big hug anyway. Maybe, maybe Jesus is honoring Stephen. Maybe he's, he's welcoming Stephen. And some believe it's, it's perhaps neither of those. Maybe it's Jesus is ready to vindicate Stephen and to judge his accusers. Because do you know what judges did back in the first century? They sat through the whole trial. And Stephen's been on trial. But when judges delivered deliver a the verdict, they stood up. And maybe here's what Stephen is saying, you think you judge me. You think you're going to take me outside of the city and you're going to stone me and you think I'm guilty, but I serve one who is my avenger. And the judge over all the judges says, I am not condemned by you because my sin has been forgiven by him and I am given my life for you to know him. You say, well, which is it? Is he honoring him? Is he welcoming him? Is he vindicating him? Here's what I think. Yes. They aren't mutually exclusive. Jesus is the son of man, he's the the one to whom Daniel said would be given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And Stephen sees the confirmation of the sermon that he has just preached. He sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father, right where he said he would be giving unfettered access to the Father, to all who believe. Not to those who have their lives totally figured out, not to those who have a copy of the Ten Commandments on their wall, or who have a temple standing in the Promised Land, but to those who come to the Father through the bloody cross of Jesus. They have a welcome in heaven. They have honor from Jesus when they serve and speak on his behalf and they have vindication before their accusers because Jesus is the Son of Man. Promised in Daniel 7. Stephen sees the son that his accusers should have been seeking and they cannot take it anymore. Look at verse 57. They cried out, they stopped their ears and together they rushed him and they took him out of the city and stoned him. They even took off their tunics in verse 58 and laid them at Saul's feet. Why in the world did they take off their tunics? That makes no sense. The only thing I can think of is this. They wanted to get maximum velocity with each palm-sized rock that they hurled towards Stephen's battered and defenseless body. When you stone someone, you took them to a cliff shallow enough that you could Hit your target, but far enough that after the person fell, they couldn't run away. They took Stephen outside the city and they pushed him over a cliff. And they laid down their garments at Saul's feet so they could grab those rocks and be unimpeded in giving maximum velocity With each shot that struck Stephen's body. Like Jesus, Stephen is taken outside the camp to be killed. Like Jesus, he suffers and dies a cruel death because he is more compelled by the glory of God than preserving his own life. Like Jesus, he prays that the Lord would receive his spirit. Interestingly, he doesn't say... Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, but Lord Jesus receive my spirit, because the Father and the Son are one. Stephen, is ex- he has seen the exalted Christ, and he knows that Jesus is going to win. Just as Jesus' crucifixion was the door to his resurrection and exaltation, Stephen's bloody death by stoning is going to become, as we will soon see next week, it's going to be, be the door to the spread of the gospel outside of Jerusalem. Stephen will join In a sense, as he dies, the long line of God's rejected saviors by speaking about the ultimate savior. But look at what happens in verse 60. Just before he dies, before he falls asleep and awakes in eternity, he prays as Jesus prayed. He prays for the forgiveness of his murderers and his accusers. God actually and eventually answers his prayer, does he not? Saul was there that day. Apparently the ringleader, perhaps a leader at the synagogue of the freedmen. And as we continue in the book of Acts, we can't get there today for the sake of time. Unless somebody orders pizza. But Saul ends up being one of the primary people that God will use to get the gospel all the way to Rome and from Rome to the ends of the earth so that people like you and me can know of Jesus, God's rejected Savior, and not reject Him again, but receive Him so that we get a life everlasting through His blood. And the reason we know today of the bloody death of Jesus that cures sin is because of the bloody death of Stephen who said, I will give my life to share the offensive gospel of Jesus Christ so that others can still know. God, forgive them. In a very real way, the stoning of Stephen becomes our salvation. So here's a question, or several as we end. Who's going to know about Jesus because of the sacrifices that you're willing to make? Will we be a church that gives the gospel away? Trusting the Spirit of God to give us the power of God and the wisdom of Christ when we need it? Will we see Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and reject idols of our own making? Or will we see Jesus as a tag-on to our lives? And will we gladly and boldly speak of Jesus no matter the cost because we are compelled by a vision of our king who has a kingdom that will never fail and never end. In closing, I want to ask you, church, can you, like Stephen, see this king? And will you, like Stephen, serve? This king. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice of Stephen. God, may you, as Paul will later tell us in Romans chapter 12, May you give us liberty and joy in presenting ourselves daily to you as living sacrifices so that still more might know that Jesus is the risen, exalted, saving King. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.